you desire to follow along in our New Testament reading today, we're reading from Acts chapter 25. Now when Festus was come into the province, after three days he ascended from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then the high priest and the chief of the Jews informed him against Paul and besought him, and desired favor against him that he would send for him to Jerusalem, laying wait in the way to kill him. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea, and that he himself would depart shortly thither. Let them therefore, said he, which among you are able, go down with me and accuse this man, if there be any wickedness in him. And when he had tarried among them more than ten days, he went down unto Caesarea. The next day, sitting on the judgment seat, commanded Paul to be brought. And when he was come, the Jews, which came down from Jerusalem, stood round about and laid many and grievous complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. While he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, neither against the temple, nor yet against Caesar have I offended anything at all. But Festus, willing to do the Jews a pleasure, answered Paul and said, Wilt thou go up to Jerusalem, and there be judged of these things before me? Then said Paul, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat, where I ought to be judged. To the Jews have I done no wrong, as thou very well knowest. For if I be an offender, or have committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. But if there be none of these things whereof these accuse me, no man may deliver me unto them. I appeal unto Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, Hast thou appealed unto Caesar? Unto Caesar shalt thou go. And after certain days, King Agrippa and Bernice came unto Caesarea to salute Festus. And when they had been there many days, Festus declared Paul's cause unto the king, saying, There is a certain man left in bonds by Felix, about whom, when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me, desiring to have judgment against him, to whom I answered, It is not the manner of the Romans to deliver any man to die before that he which is accused have the accusers face to face and have license to answer for himself concerning the crime laid against him. Therefore, when they were come hither, without any delay on the morrow, I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought forth, against whom, when the accusers stood up, they brought none accusation of such things as I supposed, but had certain questions against him of their own superstition, and of one Jesus, which was dead, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. Because I doubted of such manner of questions, I asked him whether he would go to Jerusalem and there be judged of these matters. But when Paul had appealed to be reserved unto the hearing of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept till I might send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said unto Festus, I would also hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, thou shalt hear him. 
And on the morrow, when Agrippa was come, and Bernice, with great pomp, and was entered into the place of hearing, with the chief captains and principal men of the city, at Festus' commandment, Paul was brought forth. And Festus said, King Agrippa, and all men which are here present with us, you see this man about whom all the multitude of the Jews have dealt with me, both at Jerusalem and also here, crying that he ought not to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death, and that he himself hath appealed to Augustus, I have determined to send him, of whom I have no certain thing to write unto my Lord. Wherefore, I have brought him forth before you, and specially before thee, O King Agrippa, that after examination had... I might have somewhat to write. For it seemeth to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not withal to signify the crimes laid against him. The Lord bless his holy and inspired word as it has been read and as it is today preached. My text this Lord's Day is from Proverbs chapter 21, verse 9. It is better to dwell in a corner of the housetop than with a brawling woman in a white house. I want to assure the ladies in our congregation that Solomon is not stating that women alone are brawlers within the home. The specific application of this moral truth is made to women in Proverbs 21.9. But the same moral truth equally applies to husbands as well as to wives, to parents as well as to children, to the aged as well as to the young, to the rich as well as to the poor. For example, in Proverbs 16.21, we read not of a contentious woman, but of a contentious man who stirs up strife. Wherefore, if a universal moral principle is given by God, as in this case, it speaks to all people, even if it's specifically applied in Scripture to a particular class of people. It is not limited to that class of people. If it is a moral principle, it speaks to us all. Thus, as I proceed through the text this Lord's Day, I will be applying this verse to all members of the family and to all members of the church and not to the women in our congregation only, for we all need to hear the word of the Lord today. Dear ones, contention and strife between family members, church members and friends is as rottenness in the bones, for it decays and destroys love, peace, and healthy relationships. It falls under the category of one of the abominations which the Lord hates in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19, where we read these words. These six things that the Lord hates 
Yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, and heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, notice this, and he that soweth discord among brethren. There are many ways to sow discord among brethren. And the sin of contention is one of the chief ways to bring division and disunity into a family or into the church. Let us, this Lord's day, dear ones, seek to crucify in ourselves all remnants of sinful contention as we embrace by faith alone the power of Christ's death and the power of Christ's resurrection even over this particular sin in our lives. From our text this Lord's Day, let us answer the following three questions. First, what is a contentious person? Second, why is it better to dwell in a corner of the housetop than to live with a contentious person? And thirdly, what can be done to curb contention? What is a contentious person? <clears throat> the word contention, the English word contention, comes from the verb to contend, which has in view to struggle, to strive, to stir up controversy. Where our English text speaks of a brawling woman in Proverbs 21.9, the Hebrew text says literally, a woman of contentions. This is precisely parallel to Proverbs 26.21, where it speaks of a man of contentions who can kindle strife, using the exact same Hebrew word for contentions, madon. Thus, this is a woman or a man who is characterized by contention, Strife, debate, conflict, quarreling, arguing, or nagging. What are some characteristics of the contentious person? And I dare say, dear ones, if we look very closely, we shall see some, if not all, of these particular traits to varying degrees in our own lives. Let none of us think that we never, ever manifest any of these characteristics of contention in our lives. We have deceived ourselves if we think so. We're all contentious in various ways and at various times. We're all contentious. And we all stand because of that truth. We all stand in need, desperate need of the grace of Jesus Christ. The first characteristic of a contentious person. A person characterized by contention is one who is looking for a heated debate. And so he or she pushes all the right buttons to excite the other person so as to bring this all about. It's like 
watching a pyromaniac with a box of matches who starts a fire in one location and then moves on to another area and does the same and continues to move from one area to another. You know that he or she has been around because there's fires that have been started in various places. And so it is with a contentious person. There are fires wherever that person seems to go or very often where that person goes. He or she does not have the wisdom to know what is appropriate to say to this or that person or the right time in which to say it. All caution is, with, with the contentious person, all caution is thrown to the wind. And wherever such a one goes, there is a heated debate which requires others to follow behind like firemen and put out the fires that have been started. This can happen in the family, can happen in the church, can happen at the workplace. You can follow these people around. It's like a parent who could literally follow, follow behind his little children, picking up this mess or this mess from one room to another. Because everywhere he goes, he's pulling something off the shelf or tipping something over or spilling something. And so it is with a contentious person. Put such a one in this group, well, soon there will be an argument. Put them in another group, and pretty soon there will be an argument in that group. A second characteristic. Contentious individuals are people who must control situations. And they control the situation by pushing people almost to the breaking point. For when others are out of control, the contentious person feels in control. He's controlled the situation, or she has controlled the situation by bringing somebody to kind of a point of desperation, pushing them to the edge. And so a contentious person is a controlling person. Another characteristic. Contentious people must get their own way, or there is a price to pay later on. It may be in the form of a temper tantrum, may be in the form of relentless, relentless nagging, or even in a vindictive silence. The goal for the contentious person, you see, is not peace and reconciliation. The goal for the contentious person is victory. Victory in getting one's own way by wearing the other person down to the point that they finally may even say, okay, you win, I give up. Those given to contention may even be able to control their own anger if it means winning. They may incite anger in others while controlling their own anger. That doesn't mean they're not contentious. They continue to provoke, to prod, to push, and looking for a reaction from a person. After all, it always looks better if the other person is the one who becomes angry. 
While Mr. or Mrs. Contentious sits there calmly having pushed the weaker one to the point of exasperation. That's not to condone the weaker person's explosions into anger. But it is to say that contentious people do push people. They know how to push people. They're looking for a reaction. They're not interested ultimately in peace and reconciliation, but in winning the conflict. Fourth character or characterization of the contentious person. One characterized by contention uses and manipulates people by bringing them to a point of submission for their own sanity's sake. They do not really love people, they use people. They don't really care for people, they manipulate people. They seem to have an unbounded energy and capacity to pursue relentlessly the prey until they fall over from mental fatigue and physical exhaustion. It becomes a big game, as it were, for the contentious person. Fifthly, the contentious person uses te- teasing and ridicule as a weapon to bring others to tears. He or she brings a person to submission by making them to appear very, very foolish. Sixthly, those who are contentious are busybodies, not respecting the privacy of others. To the contentious person, no one can handle a situation better than he or she, at least so he or she thinks. And the more information he or she gathers, the more division, strife, and sorrow is left along the path that they travel. And finally, Mr. and Mrs. Contentious is not given to mercy toward others. It's not given to forbearance with the weakness of others. It's not given to loving one's neighbor as oneself. He or she is not a servant of others, but a master of all. As I said, that, I think, would generally uh, summarize the character of one who who is very conspicuously a contentious person. Now, we can fall into, as I said earlier, the trap, the snare to be contentious at various times in our life, sometimes more frequently, other times less frequently. But nevertheless, falling into the same trap if we're not careful, if we don't recognize what contentiousness is, Notice what the scripture teaches about those given to contention. First, they drive others away from them, particularly those with whom they are most familiar. They drive them away. They send them running. Those who know them don't want to be around them that much because they know what will likely follow. In Proverbs 21.9, our very text here. <clears throat> it is better to dwell in the corner of the housetop than with a brawling woman in a wide house. 
Here's, a, again, in this specific application, a picture of a husband who lives with a, a contentious wife. And his thought is, it's better to be in that secluded little corner on top of my house, to be inside of my house where there's all kinds of comfortable room. The same thing is taught in Proverbs 21.19. It is better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and an angry woman. Again, don't forget that's what Solomon is saying and applying it to women, but let's not forget the universal moral principle as it applies to all of us. Men as well. Children. Old. Young. There are no differences. It's simply a fact. People tend to avoid those given to quarreling and debating. If that is what people, if that's how people view us, that we are a congregation given to quarreling and debating, that we simply enjoy debating for debate's sake, People are not going to want to visit. People are not going to want to be near us. It's a natural turnoff to most people to be around people who are caught up in simply striving, quarreling, and debating. People begin to ask, but what about love? Doesn't love, care, mercy, forbearance, patience, Doesn't this have something to do with your Christianity? Dear ones, we should be ready and willing at all times to stand for the truth. But those given to strife will argue about the most obscure points of theology and defend it with their last breath. In 2 Timothy... Chapter 2. The Apostle Paul gives some very wise words to this young evangelist. First Timothy chapter 2. I'm sorry, Second Timothy chapter 2, verses 23 through 26. But foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing that they do gender strifes. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. If God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, or taken captive by him at his will. The contentious person doesn't follow the advice of Paul, but does in fact become caught up in foolish and unlearned questions. Thus, 
The contentious person does not promote unity, but rather promotes schism within the body of Christ. It teaches us, dear ones, how much time we should spend in being firmly grounded in those truths clearly revealed by God and His Word and summarized in our confession of faith and in our catechisms. Unless we really believe that we have become so firmly grounded in all of these truths, we have no real place to venture off into these speculative areas where there is unlikely to be real progress made, edification. And when we compare how much time we spend in the foundational truths that are summarized in our confession and catechism, reflecting, thinking, praying about those things and compared to things that are more speculative, it should be overwhelmingly in favor of that which is foundational. That's what we build our Christian lives upon day in and day out, those foundational truths that are summarized there. The Bible also says about those that are contentious that they, in effect, torment others like a continual dripping faucet, according to Proverbs 27:15. A continual dropping in a very rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. I have heard it said that one form of cruel torture that has been practiced in some countries against political and religious prisoners is that of causing a very slow drop of water to fall continuously and repeatedly on the forehead of the prisoner while strapped securely in place so that he cannot move his head to avoid the drip. Although the drip of water does not physically destroy the prisoner, the relentless monotony of the drip, 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 drip of that particular water, hours and hours upon end, mentally and emotionally destroys prisoners. So likewise does the relentless nagging, relentless pressuring, relentless mocking, relentless quarreling, relentless debating, of the contentious person torment others. The Bible also teaches that, that contention is strife. And strife is actually stated in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, as one of those deeds of the flesh, for which if one practices and continues therein, that one cannot expect to enter into the kingdom of God. If that is a character trait of an individual, that they are characterized by being a contentious person, they have reason to seriously look into their life to see whether the grace of God is operative. One who is characterized by contention, dear ones, is in deep need 
of the grace of God, just as someone who's characterized by adultery or someone who's characterized by murder, to divide, to bring strife amongst brethren is an abomination, God says, and one of the abominations which is listed along with the shedding of innocent blood. It is a serious sin. Fourthly, the the Bible describes for us the contention that was aroused by Korah and Dathan and Abiram in Numbers 16, who brought division into the ranks of Israel by contending with Moses and Aaron over their leadership, their God-appointed, their divinely-appointed leadership within Israel. They were envious over the fact that God had chosen Moses and Aaron to be the leaders of Israel. They said, it shouldn't be invested in these two men. It should be shared equally by all of us. You know, here was promotion of a democracy, which God soundly condemned. He invested his authority and power in representatives. And because of the contention that they did so amongst the brethren, they were swallowed alive by the earth. The earth opened up and swallowed them and all that they possessed. So they fell into the earth alive. Fifthly, the scripture teaches us about the matter of contention as we look at the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians. And we see in chapter 1, Paul citing the very outset of this letter, one of the reasons why he is addressing this letter to them. He says in verse 11, For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. In chapter 11, of 1 Corinthians, verse 18. There were even contentions as people came to the Lord's Supper together. And we read these words. For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. And then he goes on to elaborate how those contentions and the strife was manifested between brethren as they came to the Lord's Supper. But consider, dear ones, what befell that congregation in 1 Corinthians 11.30. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep. Because of the contentions within the congregation The Lord brought illness, afflictions, and even death because of the contentions, the schism that existed within them. The fact that they did not care anymore to seek to do away with those contentions, but rather promoted them, but rather seemed to glory in those contentions, in those divisions that existed 
among them. Rather than being peacemakers, what seemed to be characterizing that congregation were troublemakers. And Apostle Paul, speaking on behalf of Jesus Christ, as Jesus walks amongst the candlesticks, as he walks amongst his churches, viewed that church. And he came to that church through Paul with his rod. And he said to that church, whom I rebuke, or whom I receive as children, I rebuke. And he invited them to come unto him, to open the door of fellowship and communion with Christ because they had left their first love. we must set the example in this congregation in our presbytery of being peacemakers of loving peace of treasuring peace and reconciliation in the truth if we ever expect that there would be worldwide unity in the visible church of Jesus Christ we must begin to see this principle realized in our families and in our homes. Take it seriously. Not that we can ever attain perfection, but we continue to strive that we be peacemakers and not troublemakers. What is the collateral damage that contention leaves in its path? Very simply, it's division, disunity, rivalry, conflict, contempt, and bitterness within the family, the church, the neighborhood, or the workplace. Where love does not cover a multitude of sins, where forbearance is absent in ministering to the weak, where division between brethren reigns, their contention has had its way. Before moving on, let me very quickly clarify what contention is not. What contention is not. Just a couple things that I would address to you. It is not contentious to stand and fight with one's whole life, with one's last breath, for the revealed truth of Jesus Christ. That is not being contentious. Jude chapter 3. We've received the very clear instruction of the Lord. When Jude says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. To contend for the faith once delivered unto the saints. However, by way of qualification, we must speak the truth but we must always speak the truth in love. In love for others rather than in contempt for others. With meekness, praying for reconciliation in the truth rather than with arrogance causing chaos and confusion. You see, we will be taken for a uh, contentious person even if we are defending the truth. 
if we seem to be inciting others by our combative and provocative language and our untimeliness in addressing certain issues. You see, he who is not contentious must be wise in how he presents the truth and at what appropriate times to to present the truth. What situations? Dear ones, any fool can break the bones of his opponent with harsh and caring words. But it is the wise man that Solomon says in Proverbs 25:15, who knows how to break the bones of his foe with soft and tender words. It's the wise man who knows how to break the bones with a soft word. You've heard the expression, you could have knocked me over with a feather. So it is true that we can speak the truth with such conviction, yea, with even tears in our eyes and meekness, with great courage, that it breaks the bones of those who hear it. Secondly, it is not contentious, dear ones, to defend the good name of our brethren or to defend our own good name. It is not being contentious to defend our own reputation or the reputation of our brethren when that name is maligned and slandered. As did Jonathan defend David's good name when David was slandered by even Jonathan's father, King Saul, in 1 Samuel 19.4. Where was the righteous and courageous person to be found, we ask, when godly Naboth was falsely accused of blaspheming God in order that Ahab and Jezebel might rob him of his life and of his property. Where was the godly person then to stand up? One person to stand up and say, this is a false accusation that has been brought against this godly man. Yes, we must defend. We must defend with our last breath and clearly oppose even the godly, even the professing Christians who have perverted the right ways of the Lord in some particular area, as when Samuel Rutherford and the Presbyterian protesters opposed the covenant breaking of the Presbyterian resolutioners in Scotland and would not partake of their sins by meeting together in presbyteries or general assemblies with them. But before taking such steps, let us seek to win our adversaries with love and gentleness and all humility, speaking the truth in love. Our second main point. Why is it better to dwell in a corner of the housetop than to live with a contentious person? Our text speaks here of a man who finds it far preferable to sit in a very small corner of his flat roof. Remember the roofs at that time were flat and they would entertain on top of those roofs? Well, this man finds it better to go up to the top of his 
house on this roof into a small little corner and to sit there rather than to sit in a spacious house where many people might comfortably sit. Why would anyone prefer to be exposed to the rain, the sun, the scorching wind, or the freezing cold on his or her roof when he could be delivered from all inclement weather simply to find some peace of mind from the constant and relentless conflict of a contentious wife or turn the tables of a contentious husband or of contentious children or of contentious parents. To the same effect is Proverbs 21.19. It is better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and angry woman. In this case, escape is made into the wilderness, into a barren and desolate land to face rather the dangers of wild animals and the inclement weather than to continue to put up with the constant barrage and torment of incessant nagging and pressuring and quarreling and fighting. Dear ones, God has designed that our homes be a haven of rest and peace. God has designed that we meet the conflicts out there, but we come home to be built up. That we come home to be edified. That we find peace and harmony within our homes. That we can better deal with the conflicts that occur outside of the home. Not that we come home to be torn down or to tear one another down. To be contentious toward one another. So when we leave the home the next morning, we're already defeated. We're already worn out. But like a limp rag. See, from our text, here is a most sad and deplorable situation because it happens between a husband and a wife who are bound together as one flesh. She who was given to be his helper throughout all of life has become his antagonizer. He who was given to be her protector and defender through all of life has become her persecutor. It reminds us of Job's wife who rather than standing with her husband when he went through such torment and such trial and affliction chose rather to contend with him. Curse God and die. Beloved, there are few miseries and heartaches in this life that are harder to bear than to find your enemy within your own bosom. And yet the Lord does not in our text condone either divorce or permanent separation from a husband or wife because they are contentious. It might be better and preferable to be up there on that roof and to live there or in the wilderness, but it's not lawful to stay there. 
It's not lawful to do so. The only grounds for a lawful divorce are adultery and a willful desertion, desertion which cannot be remedied. Separation from a spouse may occur if one's life is endangered due to violence, or if one's vocation calls him away for a time, or if persecution for the faith should separate them, or if a period of prayer and fasting should be practiced by common consent. But in cases of separation, the goal every single time is reconciliation and coming back together. It is not to see the conflict, the division, the schism to continue. Well, what can be done, dear ones, in such a situation as we find in Proverbs 21.9? Is it hopeless? No, it is not hopeless. And you need to hear that, first of all. Whatever situation you may encounter, whether in the home, in the church, the workplace, it is not hopeless. For with the Lord is abundant mercy and infinite power for both spouses in the home, members of the congregation, and even with employees. We very often use this as a benediction to our Lord's Day service, but I want you to hear this word, if ever you doubt that there is hope, where there's a contentious situation and you don't know what to do about that situation, hear the word of the Lord, a promise from God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us and his people. There is always hope because Jesus, the peacemaker, arose from the dead. There is reconciliation in the truth because Jesus lives to restore not only lives to the living God, but to restore lives to one another that have been destroyed by conflict, by contention, by strife, by nagging, by ridicule. In a moment, I will share with you how, just some suggestions, how this may be accomplished, what we can do. But think with me. Think with me for a moment. In light of the lifelong commitment of marriage, how careful you young people must be in marrying one who will not be a relentless persecutor, but a constant friend. How important it is to know the character, qualities, and tendencies of one another during your courtship period. This commitment, outside of one's commitment to Christ, this commitment of marriage is more important than any other that you will make in all of life. You must look beyond appearance, beyond education, beyond wealth, and look to his or her love for Christ, his or her love for peace, his or her love for reconciliation in the truth. Not peace at any price, but a peace and a reconciliation in the truth. I ask you, dear ones, you who are young, this Lord's Day, do you argue and quarrel frequently with one another 
about little differences. Beware. Beware. Marriage will only intensify those differences. It will not minimize them. It will magnify them. Loving peace and loving reconciliation in the truth is one of the most significant qualities to look for in a potential spouse. Finally, what can be done to curb contention? And I ask you the question, are you contentious? I ask you to ask yourself that question first and foremost because we should always begin with ourselves. Before taking the, the moat, the speck out of someone else's eye, we should seek to remove the beam from our own eye. So, do not ask the question of someone else at this point. Ask these questions of yourself. First, do you enjoy a heated debate for debate's sake? Or do you engage in debate only when the truth of Christ or a neighbor's reputation is really on the line? Second, when you see your spouse or anyone else is provoked to anger or to tears by your words, do you back off or do you pour it on? Third, do you relentlessly pursue and follow your spouse around the house when it is apparent that he or she needs some space? to cool off, to think about something, to reflect on what's just happened? Or are you willing to allow an hour or two for things to cool down, then peaceably to address the issue at hand? For do you initiate the reconciliation process by confessing your sin or must you wait until your spouse or whomever else you may have this division with uh, has first admitted defeat? Are you willing to initiate the reconciliation process? Even if, in fact, you believe you're in the right and the other person's in the wrong, are you a peacemaker? Because the Bible not only authorizes those who have offended others to go to the people that they have offended, but even those who have been offended or those who, who have been offended to approach those who offended them as well. So, hypothetically, the offender and the offendee ought to be meeting somewhere half between as they both run to one another for reconciliation. Fifthly, do you nag like a continual dripping faucet or do you speak the truth in love and then simply wait upon the Lord? Can you commit your cause unto the Lord having had the opportunity to, to present your case, wives, to present your case to your husband? Husbands, have you have you reflected to your wife that you were earnest in hearing what they had to say? That you desire their input? But then, 
Wives, instead of nagging, are you willing to wait upon the Lord and wait upon the answer that comes from your husband? And even if it isn't the answer that you had hoped for or wanted, as long as it does not cause you to become a partaker in sin, are you willing to stop nagging? Certainly husbands can be guilty of nagging as well. There's no doubt about that. And husbands, we need to ask ourselves the same question. Sixthly, are you critical of your spouse? For with those who are contentious, one of the traits that they really exhibit is that they are critical people. Very critical people. They find it very difficult to find anything in others concerning which they could encourage them. Basically, those who are contentious are critics rather than encouragers. Again, it's not to say that we should never approach people with sin that they've committed. That's not the point that I'm making. But we should be able to communicate to others encouragement and not merely criticism. Do you seek to expose the sins of others or rather, is it more your desire to to cover the sins of others whenever possible? Next. Are you angry if things are not managed in your specific way. In other words, do you believe there's only one way to do things and that is your way? Or do you believe that you should, whenever possible, grant the liberty if it's not something that is going to fall apart, something that is going to have some severe repercussions is, will you grant that there's another way to do things? And will you grant that liberty and that freedom to those with whom you work, with whom you live, to do so? And finally, is winning a quarrel more important than settling a difference to you? Is victory more important and reconciliation in the truth. Now, in conclusion today, what should you do if you do have a contentious spirit? And as I said, we all in varying degrees do have a contentious spirit. To varying degrees, all of these things can be true of us at different times in our lives. What should we do? First, honestly confess it as a sinful weakness in our life and earnestly seek forgiveness and repentance from Christ. Ask the Lord to give us the the sincere desire to overcome this sin, to hate it as God describes that He hates this sin. Secondly, at the beginning of the day, preview the questions that we have just gone through. At the outset of the day, go through those questions. 
so as to prepare yourself when this contentious spirit, when you're tempted to yield to contention, these questions might be in your mind to, so that you more readily recognize that you're falling into this sin of contention. Start the day off by reflecting on that. End the day by reflecting on these questions and doing an inventory as to how did you do during the day. Reflect honestly. Don't try to hide anything. What have you gained by hiding anything? Certainly not before God have you gained anything. And ultimately with yourself you've not gained anything if you're sincerely trying to overcome the sin. Go to those whom you have offended and ask their forgiveness. Seek reconciliation with them if there has been contention, conflict. If you're doubtful whether or not they were truly offended because of the situation, but you feel that they may have been, or certain actions on their part may indicate that they were, even though they don't say anything, go to them and say, did I offend you? Talk it through. That's a peacemaker, not a troublemaker who takes those steps. Next, if you are married and you sincerely desire to overcome a contentious spirit, if you are married, ask your spouse to love you enough to pray for you and to point out where you are contentious inside and outside the family. One of the helps that God has given to us when we're married is that we don't have to face any of these sins by ourselves if we really want to overcome them, if we have fallen into them, if they have ensnared us. We do have someone as close to our own bosom who should be ready and willing and whom we should invite to do so and whom we should not yell at, whom we should not scourge with our tongue because they do simply what we ask them to do. And so in love, the spouse does say, Honey, that was contentious. We scratch our heads. Say, How was that contentious? And our spouse tells us exactly how that was contentious. There's probably no one who will be as honest with us as our husband or wife. Let's take advantage of that if we are married and use it as a means of grace. And if you're not married, ask a trusted friend, someone whom you have great confidence in to help you in this area. Fourthly, learn to encourage others and help others rather, rather than criticizing them. Learn to be an encourager. Yes, we should have high standards in the quality of work that we perform and the quality of work that we expect. But dear ones, we will really never reach that quality of work if we don't learn how to encourage others in the work they do. Not flattery, simply complimenting them just to, to motivate them, but a sincere encouragement knowing that encouragement is, again, like a fresh breath of air 
to keep us going when times get especially hard and difficult and everything doesn't work out the way that we had hoped for or planned. Simply a word of encouragement does so much. Fifthly, become a peacemaker rather than a troublemaker by seeking to put out fires rather than to start fires. Initiate reconciliation with love and meekness rather than waiting for others to admit defeat first. Now, if you live with someone or you know someone whom you believe is especially a contentious person, I would encourage you, again, begin with yourself by taking the steps we've just mentioned. But in trying to help them, realize ultimately you can't change them, first of all. It is not a human being that changes another human being. It is the grace of God that changes people's hearts. So we must not take on ourselves a Messiah complex as if we can manipulate or we can do this or that and it's going to change somebody's, somebody's heart. Simply punch in the mathematical formula and we're going to get the desired result. No, it doesn't happen that way. Realize it is God and God alone who changes hearts. So commit this one to the Lord. Pray for them. Cover their weaknesses. Don't desire to expose their sins. But when you have the right opportunity, when it's not in the, the storm, the midst of the storm, but when it has settled down, approach them about what you perceive to be a problem in that area. And simply talk in meekness, in love, saying, I know I wrestle with the same kinds of sins. I'm not saying it's all you and not me. That I, too, fall into this sin. But point out to the loved one, to the friend, that this does affect your relationship. And because you desire to have the best relationship possible, ask them, may I help you? May I be of assistance? Will you allow me to help in any way? And perhaps go through some of the steps with that we have just gone through. These steps, share them with this person. And see if, again, they would express a willingness, if possible, to do so. And above all, dear ones, something that speaks louder than your words is your example. Set an example. Set a pace for them to follow, a pathway. Let them see that you're not simply talking about their life, but unwilling to change your own life. Let them see by your own example what God's grace can do in a person's heart and life. And don't ever give up hope. Continue to trust Jesus Christ that He is able to change people's hearts. Look, dear ones, to Christ who loved peace and reconciliation and the truth to such a degree that he was willing to lay down his own life to secure it for all those who put their faith and trust in him. In Ephesians chapter 2, he came preaching peace. And he brought peace 
between two factions of mankind, the Jews and the Gentiles, informed and made one man, destroying the barriers, the enmity that divided them. He is the peacemaker. And the more we become like Jesus Christ, the more we will inherit the blessing that Jesus spoke of and the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. You see, this is the root problem. If I could simplify this, this is the root problem that has been quietly accepted among professing Christians throughout the world. We've accepted simply sin, error, and rebellion that causes dissension, division, and contention within the Church of Jesus Christ. We simply accepted it as something normal. The various denominational uh, names, the barriers that separate us, we simply accepted and tolerated these as something normal. But you see what the root problem is? The root problem is contention that separates us. If we would rid the church of all such contention, let us begin with our own hearts, our own families, and our own congregation. For if it doesn't work there, it's not going to work out there. It doesn't work in here. It's not going to work out there. We cannot expect it. We cannot even pray for God to work a miracle out there if God doesn't work that miracle in here amongst us. May the Lord make us a congregation where we are known as peacemakers rather than troublemakers to the glory of Jesus Christ. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we have heard this day that Thou dost consider contention and sowing discord among brethren to be an abomination unto thee. And we confess our sin in contributing, aiding and abetting division by our contention. Whether in the home, in the church, in the workplace, Lord, forgive us of our sin. Have mercy upon us. Cause us, O Lord, to love, peace, and reconciliation in the truth and to pray for it with all of our hearts. O Lord our God, work in the marriages, we pray, of each family represented in our congregation. Cause us, O Lord, to seek peace and to pursue it. We pray, our Father, that Thou would cause our children as well to love peace and unity in the home. And parents, O Lord, to love that as well, that we not push one another to the point of exasperation, that we not, Lord, uh, see that any difference become a game or a battle that we must win simply to say that we've won. That, Father, settling the difference, being at peace with one another, loving one another, being in agreement in the truth, O Father, that these would be our goal for which we strive with all of our hearts. We thank Thee for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has made peace possible, who is our hope of peace, and in whom we trust to accomplish this in our lives, in our families, and in the, in the church of Christ 
at large. In whose name we pray. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.